Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and there is no regular episode of the podcast this week. And I know I said I would be taking a break until December, but I thought, hey, it's been a while since I've done a podcast, and uh, I've also been watching a lot of stuff, so I'm going to crank out a, a bonus episode for you guys this week. And uh, I can't really do an episode by myself, so I decided to uh, ask my lovely fiance to join me for this episode. You may know her as at Joy of Napping on Twitter. You, you may not. In fact, you almost certainly don't. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm great. I am so excited to be um, here because I have a dream that other people have submitted that there would be a guest, all guests episode of the podcast, which is just the partners or wives of the hosts. And so we are one third of the way there. Indeed, one third of the way there. Uh, Well, anyway, uh, appreciate you joining me today here on the podcast. And yeah, we're here uh, just to talk about some what we've been watching for the last month. That's basically all we're going to do today. thought we'd just th- throw together a quick episode for you guys to tide you over until uh, Devendra and Jeff review Justice League next week. So uh, anyway, what are we talking about this week? We've seen a bunch of stuff over the course of the last month. Uh, one thing we've seen is Thor Ragnarok, right? Yep. And uh, we saw this at the Seattle Cinerama. It was a great experience. Uh, this is the third Thor film. Uh, it was directed by Taika Waititi this time. And it was very funny. Uh, I heard there was a love fest that ensued for this film on the, fest, uh, uh, on the podcast. Uh, we thought it was pretty good. I would say like a B is what I would Yeah, give it. I would yeah. put it middle, maybe even upper middle of the pack for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What do you think? Yeah, uh, probably top half, you know. Uh, <laughs> Similar. Uh, Top half, but not top quarter. It was an extremely well-reviewed film, uh, but uh, I think there were... uh, uh, Here's what was great about it, okay? Is uh, it was so weird, like the Sakaar planet with uh, Jeff Goldblum and his character and everything like that. Like all that stuff, the music by the ex-Devo guy, all that stuff was awesome. Uh, But every time they cut back to like what was going on in Asgard with the villain played by Cate Blanchett and all that stuff... Uh, none of that stuff was very interesting. This is another movie where they botched the villain again, and uh, that it's very unfortunate. Marvel can't seem to do villains correctly, in my opinion, uh, or, or very rarely correctly. I mean, Loki is probably the best villain that they have, and uh, even he, I think oh, he's here. It's he's just unrecognizable from it, the other movie. All the characters are unrecognizable. I mean, I think this movie kind of retcons. Uh, Thor's personality, right? I mean, yeah, he's... it's a big tone shift. In you know, he's very funny and slapstick and in previous movies. He was not like that, as far as I no, recall. No, he spoke very sort of portentously. Yeah, and now he's yeah. like Jim Halpert from The Office, you know? But, you know, I know that you weren't as much of a comic book guy growing up, and I think that's not that uncommon for comic books to do, to take the same characters and sort of rewrite them in different timelines or different tones or different characterizations or even different um, visualizations. I think one thing we're seeing with uh, a character like Loki and like what you're just, and Thor and what you're describing is, is we are running into the limits of what uh, comic book to film adaptations can do. Meaning that in a comic book, you change the person's character or you change their personality uh, all the time, left and right, from issue to issue or whatever. And in films, if you do that, it feels weird. 
I think there are just two conflicting forces here. One is that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is so carefully planned out. Each piece leads to the next and is part of kind of a puzzle that you have your Avengers or you have your Infinity War that kind of is the capstone for certain arcs. And so when something is a change, it feels more dramatic to me. The other thing is they're trying to learn. I think this movie is trying to be like Guardians and kind of its lightness of tone and its silliness. And I, I enjoyed it far more than the other two Thor movies. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think the uh, Thor 1 was okay. It was, a, it was an okay Marvel film. But Thor 2, I just thought, was not only a bad Marvel film, it was just a bad film, period. Uh, just, just not enjoyable yeah, I actually stopped watching it midway through. Yeah, it's a pretty bad movie. So, But I, I think my point is that when you have the desire to be somewhat nimble and responsive to what the audience wants, which, of course, these are commercial enterprises and you need to do, but you really only have, in the whole thing, start to finish, 20 chapters maybe, like any differences are going to be really noticeable. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's uh, not a and, weekly or And yeah, I guess, I guess what is my counterfactual that they don't learn from their horrible mistakes like Thor The Dark World? You know, I think they, they learned from it. They decided to inject some more weirdness into uh, the franchise and some more humor. And I think the, it's stronger for it. So, uh, But continuity aside, I think you didn't think it was that strong of a movie is what I'm hearing. I think that's right. I think uh, it, it just felt like a standard Marvel film with some extra humorous weird elements injected in that were moderately refreshing. Yeah. But I, I think I, I, what I heard was that, oh my gosh, this movie is amazing in a, in a way. It reinvents the genre and uh, it's just a, another Marvel film uh, with some cool elements and some cool actors in it that, you know, uh, do some interesting things. I and, thought it was a, a total pleasure and completely forgettable. Yeah. I've compared it to A Miller High Life. Goes down really easy. No memory immediately afterward that that happened. I think that's a, a, a great comparison. So uh, Thor Ragnarok, not something that we thought was great. Not going to be my top ten of the year. Just but good, pretty, pretty fun. We not had a, great, a waste of money. Yeah, we like had a great, great time. Way to spend great time a in the night. theater. You, yeah. you felt like you got your money's worth. Um, so there you go. Uh, I should also point out before we continue that uh, we probably won't be will not be spoiling any of the movies that we talk about today. Sure. So uh, we'll mention a few movies, but we probably won't be spoiling anything. So, Dave, one of the interesting things is in the past month uh, of your freedom from podcasting, if not uh, freedom from we expressing say, yourself uh, as we podcast yes. in many, many, many different other forms, um, you and I actually have not seen as many movies together as we normally would. So, quote unquote, what we've been watching, the war, I think, is like the only thing we've seen together. There yeah. have been things you've seen and there are things I've seen. Yeah, uh, so we've seen a lot of things separately. One thing I saw was the Yorgos Lanthimos movie, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Killing of a Sacred Deer. This stars Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman. And it's a story about uh, Colin Farrell, who's a doctor, uh, who uh, accidentally kills someone while he's uh, operating on them. Uh, and then kind of befriends that person's son, uh, the, the, the dead man's son, and um, kind of some nasty things happen as a result of, of that friendship. And uh, I thought this movie was overall pretty good. It was pretty horrifying, and uh, the performances were amazing, and it, it's kind of, like, very gut-wrenching. Uh, and one thing that this director likes to do, he's the guy who made movies like The, uh, the Lobster, uh, Dogtooth, The Alps, he takes reality and bends it in a really twisted way and then kind of sets these characters on this path, which is tragic. And you just get to see it play out and imagine yourself 
in that situation and wonder what you would do in that situation. And so I think he's known for his absurdism. Um, do you think it veers more grim or a little more funny or a little I, I, more satirical? Well, I think, I think one thing that his movies do well is they ask the question, what would you do in a situation where the absurd or the fantastical or the mystical mm-hmm. or the magical intruded upon uh, the mundanity of your life? Like, what, what would happen? What would, you, what would your reaction be if something inexplicable uh, occurred? Uh, and, you know, so with this movie, I think that's certainly it. But with The Lobster, you know, it was very much like that lobster situation was a metaphor for. Uh, how society treats couples. But there's also like times where you could put yourself in the perspective of the characters on screen and ask like, well, okay, what would I, what, what decision would I make in, in that, in that uh, situation? And I think this movie does that really well uh, as well. I mean, when I finished watching Dog Tooth, when I finished watching The Lobster, I haven't seen The Alps, but when, when I finished watching his other two movies, those movies' endings both hit me like a freight train. Like, those endings are so good. Like, Dog Tooth, I just love all the way through. But The Lobster, I wasn't as huge of a fan of, but the ending really hits you like a truck. Uh, this movie wasn't quite like that. I got to the end and I felt like, oh, I'm not sh- exactly sure what the point of all that was. Overall, I'd say it was pretty good. Uh, I, I liked it. Uh, I thought it was thought-provoking, but I don't know that it's my favorite film of his. In fact, some, I know it's not my favorite film feel of Feel some award season buzziness for it, maybe, for screenplay? or mm, Yeah, because Lobster was nominated for Best Screenplay, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, or I for don't, Kidman and Farrell? Uh, I think Kidman and Farrell both do amazing. This is the second Nicole Kidman performance this year that's really laid me out. Um, uh, her performance in, what is it, Big Little Big Lies? Big Little Lies. Yeah, she's just marvelous in that. She's incredible in this Farrell and Kidman were both phenomenal in this movie so there's a lot to recommend it but it is also relentlessly bleak and unpleasant so you know it just depends on what kind of mood what you're kind in. of holiday you're having exactly exactly so that's the killing of a sacred deer by Yorgos Lanthimos uh I'd recommend it don't know if I'd check it out in the theater unless you want to be depressed uh which some people might during the holiday season so that's something else I've been watching what have you been watching um, at the opposite end of the existentialism uh, spectrum, I have been watching Murder on the Orient Express. The new Kenneth Branagh movie. Um, it pains me to hear it described that way, but yes, that is accurate. So this is sumptuous and just a really easy uh, watch. It is the Agatha Christie classic, probably her most famous book, um, brought to life for the third time at least um, in sort of feature length. Uh, format and yeah, and you say it pains you to say that it's a Kenneth Branagh movie because you are a big fan of Agatha Christie. I am uh, not only the novels but also the television adaptations of her work, right? Well, specifically the television adaptation that took like twenty-seven years to unfold, in which David Suchet, the British actor, managed to film all seventy-plus stories that Hercule Poirot right. So you're a uh, big, in, you're a so. big David Suchet fan. So yeah. so it's kind of like watching Hercule like Poirot is her Belgian detective. It would be you know imagine like it would be like watching the X Files movie and like different actors are playing Mulder and Scully right like that's basically what watching uh, Murder on the Orient Express was for you right. Um, I think the problem with me thinking of it as a Kenneth Branagh movie is that he not only directed it but he stars in it. He seems ill suited to be starring in it. Why and why do you he, think he's ill suited? Um. I think that he has a particularly famous look. And I think he's kind of a good-looking guy. And he does not look anything like what 
Hercule Poirot is supposed to look like. Because Hercule Poirot is not like necessarily a very dashing, handsome man, right? No, he's a very dapper person, but um, there's pretty specific and strong language that he has an egg-shaped head, that he's very funny looking, you know, and that he's a little bit of an oddity. And like what Kenneth Branagh has to bring, therefore, is a bunch of little ticks and eccentricities to try to make up for the fact that he's kind of actually a good-looking dude. So Kenneth anyway. Branagh's a good-looking dude, and he's got he's got to ugly himself up That's with his right. behavior. Yeah. And uh, you can't egg-shape that head. So um, <laughs> overall, I will say that I am such. Uh, Homer for, you know, the Agatha Christie stories, that as long as this thing had enough budget thrown at it, which this most certainly did, um, with a star-studded cast and really beautiful production, I I couldn't have cared less if this movie was good because I was going to enjoy it no matter what. Um, I would say it is merely okay. Um, But it's almost like a karaoke situation where, like, you're just waiting to hear if that person can hit those, like, certain notes that you love so much. Mm -hmm. Um, There are certain notes in this very famous story that this adaptation hits better than any of the others. There are others that I think are a little bit of a miss. Um, But it is hard to cram a story with 14 to 16 main characters into two hours of screen time. Mm. And especially when those people are all, almost all quite famous actors. Yeah, you got like, what, Penelope Cruz, Michelle Day- Pfeiffer, Daisy Willem Ridley, Defoe, uh, Josh Gad, Johnny Depp. Judy Dench. Uh, and then, strangely enough, Olivia Coleman is thrown in for like 10 lines max. And yeah. then mostly she's speaking German. Um, but it was, uh, you know what someone else uh, said about it, a friend of mine? It was a movie for grown-ups. It didn't have any blow them up, shoot them up, you know, stuff. It was just a lot of dialogue and a lot of, like, plot, and they greatly appreciated that. And I am so, so excited. Bradley of Martin in the chat room says, did Johnny Depp wear a silly hat? I think he's referring to the fact that Johnny Depp's performances are often based off of his hat in that movie. Um, but it sounded like, from what you said to me earlier, that Johnny Depp did a great job in this film. I was really worried based on the trailer that the affectations would be extremely over the top from Kenneth Branagh in particular, but also from Johnny Depp. And actually, in both cases, I think they were mostly fine. The mustache was distracting. Hercule Poirot is famous for his mustache. Kenneth Branagh decided to take it to like three tiers. Like its handlebars have handlebars. It's incredible. Um, But if you can get past that visually, I I recommend it. And I think it is a really good... um, we're all together for the holidays. Grandma, uh, you know, the middle generation, the younger generation. Like, we have to go see a movie all together. Like, this feels like a family, like, mm. excursion kind of movie. So, yeah. uh, so, I do recommend it. You do recommend it. Uh, it. I've heard a lot of people say it's boring, which, uh, you know, you didn't seem to think it was boring. I uh, mean, um, I am a person who travels by train, by choice to some extent so like i am squarely in the demographic of this movie this is your super bowl basically so just take that with a grain of salt as some people may know i may have dressed up in sort of 1920s 1930s gear for this yeah so 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 if that sounds like you then you might enjoy murder on the edwardian times were the pinnacle of your dreams and theoretically maybe if you just like a decent murder mystery told uh Competently. Competent. Competent. Very competent. Very competent. Yeah. You know, uh, I've heard the movie looks like it costs way more than the $55 million budget. Uh, And it's performed so well at the box office that I think it's reasonably likely we will get a successor. Yeah, a Poirot cinematic universe, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) The look I'm giving him. Anyway, Um, (laughs) so uh, that's Murder on the Orient Express. Yep. And it's on theaters right now. And if you like murder mysteries, you may enjoy it. Okay. 
What uh, else have you been watching, Dave? So I had a chance to go see Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri. This is a new film by Martin McDonough, uh, the guy who did In Bruges, Seven Psychopaths. Uh, this movie stars Francis McDormand. And uh, I'll say overall, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was great, even. Uh, Francis McDormand puts in a great performance. Uh, uh, is this his first movie since In Bruges? No, no, no. Seven Psychopaths. Oh, Seven Psychopaths. But he had just not made a, a huge number. Correct. Yeah. Not, not that I know. Um, but people will correct us if I'm wrong. Uh, but yeah, as far as I know, he's, this is his third film. Um, and it's about a, an act of violence that occurred to uh, Francis McDormand's daughter. And she takes action as a result of it. Uh, how Fargo does Francis feel? Someone asks in the chat room. Ratman returns asks in the chat room. How Fargo does she feel? Um, not even close. This is like the farthest thing away from that performance. You know, the Francis McDormand in Fargo was uh, calm, collected, intelligent, calculated in every single decision that she made. This character is probably the opposite of all of those, except possibly intelligent. You know, like, I mean, I'm saying this character is intelligent in the, in the movie, but... Uh, She's very hot-headed and, and, and makes these decisions that you can understand why she's making them, but you don't necessarily agree with what she's doing. What this movie tries to say, I think, you know, th- there's a very basic level of uh, violence begets violence, revenge gets, begets revenge, and, and an eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind. Like, this, is a, this is a concept that's been conveyed many times in movies before. But what's what I think this movie does really well is similar to like Killing of a Sacred Deer. Like it it uh, plays out the situation in ways that are really interesting. Like the the characters are complicated, and the way the story unfolds is complicated. I'll just give one tiny example. Uh, the police chief in this uh, movie is accused of incompetence for not uh, catching the person who did this horrible crime to Francis McNorman's character's daughter. And in a typical film, uh, I would say that the police chief would be like a fairly deplorable character who, you know, you have little sympathy for and is arguably the villain. But in this movie, he's actually an incredibly honorable person that everyone respects. And as a result, there's like uh, a lot of tension between Francis McDormand's characters and everyone else who respects this police chief, uh, this police chief, I should say. Um, And just seeing how those characters kind of play themselves out and, and, and seeing how... Does it feel like more organic than plot-driven as a result? More character-driven? Oh, totally, driven? totally. Like, I, I don't think that much actually happens during the movie. Uh, it's very character-driven. I mean, Martin McDonough was... Surprise! A, the police chief was the killer! <laughs> the, uh, Martin McDonough was uh, like a, a playwright, right, before yeah. he started making movies. And uh, this movie shows that he's still at the height of his powers with like these really amazing... Uh, monologues and scenes of dialogue between characters and, and very real realistic feeling, well-drawn interactions. Uh, so uh, I thought it was great. I thought it sounds yeah, like yeah. the way you've described it, it, it was pretty dark, but did it, was it more funny as it, well? I would say it's, very similar, quite it's funny. very similar in tone to Imbruch. It's, it's a very dark subject matter with just these flashes of hilarity and absurdity that make you feel like, uh, you're, you're, it's, it could have been only something out of real life, you know, that is this tragic and absurd and funny at the same time. Um, so I really liked it. 
When does that go into wide release? Because I think they're going to make a big award season push for that one. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to be... By the time you're listening to this, it should be out in theaters in limited release. Um, yeah, it's out in limited release right now and, and should be rolling out wider in the weeks to come. So that's three billboards in uh, Ebbing, Missouri. Outside. Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Sure. Sorry. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and uh, it's out in limited release right now. All right. Uh, what have you been watching? You've been watching one other thing, right? Um, yeah. So it, I think I was one of 44 people nationwide who saw LBJ, the Lyndon Baines Johnson biopic, which starred... This is like the way... sequel to uh, Selma, right? No, it runs parallel to Selma, oh. except uh, the Civil Rights Act gets passed without any mention of MLK. Um, wow. So Woody Harrelson plays LBJ in a really passable performance, and Jennifer Jason Lee plays Lady Bird Johnson um, in an also very passable performance. Both of them, though, are pretty famous faces with an enormous amount of makeup on, and it sort of it distracts at times. Um, I think the challenge with this is, as you may know, like Robert Caro is working on probably literally the 3,000th page that he's written about LBJ, um, like the famous historian Robert Caro. And like the guy... I, did, I didn't know that. But. Okay. The guy has an extraordinarily complicated life and legacy and incredibly interesting, um, forceful personality. And although I thought they brought some of that through with little detail touches in order to fit this into one movie, which I believe is only 90 minutes long. They really focus just on um, his election to be vice president and then the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And I think his actual legacy is quite a bit more complicated. He also drags us into a quagmire in the Vietnam War. Like, I mean, we were already in the Vietnam War, but, um, you know, uh, I think history looks back on LBJ in a much more mixed way. Um, but I think at this moment in time with race relations, um, being what they are in this country at the center of a dialogue that is allowing for more nuance and complexity, this movie feels awfully simplistic. It was sort of like the Butler treatment. You know, it was just mm. a very broad strokes uh, kind of biopic. So I would not personally vouch for this um, unless you happen to be an LBJ completist. <laughs> and you also want to see Brian Cranston's yeah, I, I, well, miniseries. Our, our audience is known for being comprised largely of LBJ completists. So I think they should check it out. All right. The movie's LBJ. Yes. I didn't even know that it existed before you told me you saw it. I didn't know it existed until the prior night when my friend said, I want to see this movie. Do you want to come? And someone in the chat room said, you described this movie perfectly. Oh. So. And I, I'm going to say, even after hearing you talk about it, I still don't actually believe it exists. So uh, that's LBJ, and it's theoretically out in theaters right now. Yes. I want to mention a couple things that I've been watching on television that I feel the need to uh, just mention. By television, do you mean streaming services? Streaming services, yeah. Because uh, we don't actually watch television, I feel like. Well, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> I One thing that I watched on television was You're the Worst, the FX original series, which just completed, I think it's fourth season? Uh, pretty sure it's the fourth season. And uh, I just love the show so much. Uh, it is a show that uh, is about terrible people making terrible decisions. And... 
I see a lot of myself in these characters. Mm, uh, and do tell. Well, it's just that, like, at some point in my life, I've either made terrible decisions or wanted to make some of the terrible decisions that these people make. And, uh, and at the same time as they are real uh, fuck-ups, uh, they are also very lovable. And uh, I kind of like that the show is able to repel you from these characters while still uh, keeping you attached to them. And that takes some skill, I think. And it's also just in general like a very uh, great and razor-sharp take on modern-day relationships and how messy they can be. Uh, so that's You're the Worst. It just wrapped up, I think it's fourth season on FX or FXX, whichever one of those. Our farm is a dairy farm. We only use organic feed. The cows produce, you know, quality organic milk. Yet all our hens are RSPCA assured, free to roam in and out of the sheds throughout the day. They lay a lovely yolk. The key to our beef cattle is looking after their, their welfare, keeping them happy. At McDonald's, we're proud to source quality ingredients from over 23,000 farmers from across the UK and Ireland. Good to know. FX Network, it's on now. I don't even know. Uh, and I'm a huge fan. You can watch the first three seasons on Hulu, and I watched the most recent season on FX now, the FX streaming app. So, so that's one thing I watched. And I also finished the most recent season of Nathan for You. I think that is also season four. It's also on television, not streaming, uh, although I did watch it via streaming apps like the Comedy Central app. And... I gotta say, uh, you, should you tell people what Nathan for You is? Well, Nathan for You is this Comedy Central show uh, that has Nathan Fielder, the comedian slash actor, recommending absurd business ideas, and it's kind of this uh, shot in the style of a reality show, you know. And uh, as an example, I think you know the first episode really sums up what the show is like. He's like a business school graduate, uh, an MBA, and uh, he recommends these incredibly dumb ideas, and then these business owners implement the ideas, and awkwardness and hilarity ensues. The first episode is uh, him going to a yogurt, a frozen yogurt shop, and in order to drum up press, he creates a new flavor of yogurt, poo-flavored yogurt. It's flavored like poop. And... Uh, like half of the fun of the show is watching him suggest that idea in incredibly deadpan style and then the business owner like reacting to it like oh yeah like that sounds like a terrible idea but this guy is not only an MBA person but uh, also has a reality television show he can't be steering me wrong and and so it's a it's a satire of not only kind of these, uh, not reality television, but like business improvement, like cons- like consulting in general as a concept, uh, and eventually like becomes a you know a, a commentary on like media itself in many ways uh, that I really appreciate it. It just wrapped up its fourth season. Now, so you, I, I think you captured in that the sort of deadpan. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen the guy break character, yeah. the awkwardness um, and the ludicrousness. But I think each season uh, gets more and more um, truly elaborate to the point that it's like a Rube Goldberg contraption. Um, that said, it has gotten to the point where it almost feels like it's, not jumping the shark, but like there may be like nowhere else to go with this concept. Yeah, so, so. You, you know me that I am not just a Nathan for you 
fan. I am a Nathan for You evangelist. Like, I will tell everyone about how amazing Nathan yes. for You is as a show. When I do not want to watch Nathan for You with you, you make this very elaborate sad face. <laughs> it's a very elaborate sad face. Yeah. Uh, it has stages. I am a huge fan of Nathan for You, and so I was so psyched for this season. And I was, uh, to be honest, quite let down by the season. I thought it was. It does feel like the show is showing its age. It, it felt like he had put in a lot of work into this season, but uh, most of the time I felt like the schemes were more elaborate and less effective than in seasons past. Uh, and that was a real disappointment. But there were two episodes that I thought were really extraordinary. Uh, one is uh, there is an episode called The Anecdote, which is a deconstruction of late-night talk show anecdotes, uh, where he basically tells a late-night talk show anecdote on Jimmy Kimmel that he describes as the perfect late-night talk show anecdote because he's analyzed hundreds of talk show appearances and knows what a good anecdote is. And then he, he, he develops this anecdote and then makes it come true in real life. It's one of the most extraordinary things I've seen. So I really love that episode. I think it was season four, episode four, I want to say, the anecdote. And then there's season four, episode seven, the season finale of Nathan For You called Finding Francis, which is a two-hour documentary about uh, him befriending an old man that he met in season one of the show and then trying to track down that man's lost love from decades ago. And it is really an extraordinary uh, two hours of television. So you think um, people could watch these two episodes and skip the rest of the season? Yes, I think you could. Um, I and think, if you were only to watch one, you'd watch the finale? The finale is, like, what I think you should do is you should watch at least one other episode of Nathan for you, like the first one ever, you know? Um, but even if you, you just find some skits online, you, like a bunch of the, the sketches are, are on uh, the internet on YouTube, watch a couple of those. But then if you can, watch Finding Francis, the season finale of Nathan for you. Uh, it is extraordinary. It's moving. It's troubling. Uh, it has one of the most emotional, powerful scenes I've seen on television this year. Uh, it's it, it, like he, he hit it out of the It's clear he filmed hundreds of hours of footage for this episode. Right. And I think the final edit hits it out of the park. Uh, there are some problems I had with it, but overall, it's an incredible journey. And uh, I loved it. So that's Nathan for you, the most recent season. The season finale is called Finding Francis, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, so those are a couple of the things I'd recommend. So as we wrap up this bonus episode, uh, why don't we talk about some things that we're looking forward to watching? Yeah, I mean, we're heading into, as we record this, Thanksgiving week. So I'm sure lots of people have holiday binges planned, you know, either with their family or to get away from their family. Um, so I think there are a few things that you and I are trying to see that are theatrical releases. One is Lady Bird. Yep. The new the Greta new... Gerwig movie I've heard is incredible. So, so. she wrote it and directed it. Yep. And she, I'm going to mispronounce her name. Sir Ronan. Sir Ronan something yeah. uh, is in it. Um, and who plays her mother? I, I don't know any of the plot of the film. I've just heard it's very good. So, uh, so do you wish not to be? I wish not to be told about the plot. So I too hear it is good. Yes. We can stop there. Um and then uh, the movie Mudbound. Yeah, this is a. Uh, it's going to be a Netflix. Net, I think it's on Netflix as we speak today. Right yeah. now, I've heard it's great, and um, looking forward to checking that out. That is an ensemble um, st- 
story about two families in the post-World War II South. Um, and I believe it's one white family and one black family. And um, I've heard it's great. And you should definitely watch it this weekend instead of other choices you might have at the multiplex. Uh, uh, the Lately, dis- you've been mad at the multiplex. It's been rough. The Disaster Artist, uh, the James Franco movie that describes the making of the room. The Disaster Artist, the book, is a great book and uh, very actually unexpectedly moving. You know, uh, and it's about the making of this disastrous cult classic, which is maybe considered one of the worst movies ever made. Yeah. Um, a movie that you have seen how many times? I don't know, probably like five or six times. Yeah. It's not, not that many. I'm not an obsessive room watcher. but There are multiple weekly screenings in Seattle yeah, I've to seen, this day. I don't know about weekly, but yeah, the, like monthly, probably. No, I think they have it weekly. Every week? I believe so. Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, yeah, The Room is uh, one of the worst movies of all time. And it, I think the movie is about the making of, you know, how, how you can... The uh, I think the book is kind of about how you can fail your way into excellence. Oh, we need to <laughs> you know, get on that. Yeah, and I think the movie <laughs> tells a similar story. So I'm really looking forward to checking out the Disaster Artist. Um, what else? Uh, Shape of Water. I've heard is incredible. Oh, yeah, the new Guillermo del too. Toro movie. Shape of Water is coming out in December in limited release. Uh, there is uh, the new movie by the guy who directed uh, what's it called? The, the, the movie is called The Square with Elizabeth Moss, but uh, Ruben Ostlund or something. I'm, I'm messing up the name, but um, he also directed that other movie about uh, uh, about that avalanche. I, I don't know why I can't think of it. Usually, like I have my computer and I'm typing frantically during yeah. episodes, but because of our recording setup, I can't type without the mics picking it up. That movie about the avalanche. That movie about the avalanche. Is it avalanche? Exclamation! 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 No, it's no. It's a musical. No, uh, it's uh, San Avalanche with uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Actually, no, I'm just joking. Um, come on, guys! People in the chat room, uh, help me out with this movie that. Uh, you guys, the guy who directed The Square, he directed this movie. Like, it was a great movie. It was, like, one of the best movies of that year. No one knows what I'm talking Trapped about. Trapped in Snow, the avalanche story. Yeah. Uh, Trapped in Snow 2, Electric Boogaloo. Okay. Uh, someone's going to come up with it in, like, 30 seconds. Or 45 yeah. or 60. Yeah. Um, I will say, uh, can I move on? Yes, yes. Um, there is a movie that we will not be Force watching. Majeure, thank you. Oh, yeah, Force Majeure. Thank you, Why guys. Why did you just Jesus. say force majeure? Uh, it's because I didn't. I couldn't remember what it was. Yeah, no, okay. I was there for it. Um, okay, so a movie we will not be watching. Well, hold on. Let's not get. Let's wait for that until the end. Okay. Um, All right. Well, I just want to mention a couple things that we might binge. Uh, I might binge. F- well, a few other things. We will also probably see Coco, the new Pixar movie. Oh yeah. Um, we have uh, some friends for whom it is very culturally relevant, and so and they can tell us if it is culturally on point or not. Yeah, looking forward to checking out Coco. I believe it's out in Mexico already. Yeah, out and in Mexico it already. Yeah, is not poorly received there. Yep. Uh, so looking forward to that. And I think there's like one other. Uh, oh, Last Jedi, of course. That mm-hmm. should be really interesting. So. Looking forward to checking that movie out. I mean, the movie was apparently so good, they gave him another three movies, Ryan Johnson. So Yeah. Uh, and when I heard that news, I was both elated for Ryan Johnson, you know, and also kind of sad that we're not going to get some, you know, original Ryan Johnson movies. I remember... It also decreases the chances that he will troll you with his banjo anytime It's soon. true. And, you know, I remember... Uh, when I was interviewing Ryan Johnson like eight or nine years, seven or eight years ago, he had just made The Brothers Bloom. You know, uh, Brick, I think, cost like a few hundred thousand dollars. 
and he had made the Brothers Bloom, which was like a few million dollars. And I was interviewing him uh, for the release of that film. And I remember him describing like how intense uh, the writing and directing his own films were. Like it just takes years and years, you know, three to five years to just write and direct your own movie. Uh, I think if you're lucky, yeah. Yeah, if it's an indie film. And um, so to hear that he's going to be moving on to these Star Wars movies, uh, where my guess is he's going to have a little bit of help when it comes to the writing and the directing uh, and probably cranking them out faster than like once every five years. Uh, It's both like extremely exciting for his career and also I'm a little bummed out that I'm not going to get some like really bold original. Yeah, but he's going to have that F.U. money by the time it's done (laughs) and he can self-finance everything he wants to do. I I hope we see like these three Star Wars movies and then like 10 indie films after that. I don't most directors don't go that way, though. And when they do, they make movies like The Book of Henry sometimes. So you never know. It's the blank check. Yeah, the blank check effect. Syndrome. Speaking of which, great podcast. Anyway. Um, so a couple of people asked, someone asked about Punisher. I, I just have no real interest in the Marvel uh, TV shows on Netflix, so I'm... I don't think you've watched... I've watched like six episodes of Daredevil, and that's it. We tried to watch Iron Fist. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, so. And Molly's Game. Molly's Game. Really psyched about Molly's Game. I'm pretty sure that is Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut. Uh, Jessica Chastain is apparently amazing in that film. So uh, that's Molly's Game. I'm really psyched for that as well. Aaron Sorkin's directorial yeah. debut. He's only written and never directed? Yeah, Oh, correct. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, we also had started watching Better Things, and I'm excited to binge that. Yeah. I don't know if it's a binge show exactly, but I found it incredibly, I mean, Relatable. Look, if you want to hit sort of the middle-aged women demographic. Um, but, you know, we don't have a lot of shows. There are so many shows about middle-aged men and their hang-ups. So I'm happy to have one decent, honest show about a middle-aged woman. All right. No, that's fair enough. Uh, who's juggling motherhood and work. And I think she's single, too. So, um, And then... Uh, I've heard better things. The, like I just heard the season two wrapped up, and I heard it's incredible. Like So I heard season two is better than season one, and it's amazing. So it's kind of like one of those things you want to work towards. Yeah. Well, we're yeah way back at the beginning of season one. And if it's even better than this, I, I can't imagine. I'll probably be... <laughs> You'll lose your mind with how <laughs> I'll good be curled up on the couch with Kleenex yeah. throughout the whole thing. Um and if I could just pause on better things for a minute. Sure. There is a scene where uh, she comes home from a trip a day early, business trip a day early. Her mother greets her in the driveway, won't shut up about incredibly trivial stuff in her life and keeps going, feel my muscles, feel my muscles. And like just blathering and blathering and blathering about neighborhood meetings and her muscles and her toenails and like whatever. And finally, Pamela Adlon freaks out and is like, Get the fuck out of my house. Get out of here. I cannot be listening to this right now. So um, off the mother goes, slightly offended, of course. And then Pamela Adlin walks into her house, and uh, her kids, her teenage daughters, have thrown this rager of a party and absolutely trashed it, like sacks of flowers strewn everywhere. Terrible, right? She yells at them that they are going to clean it up, but she doesn't really lose her temper the way she should, probably. And then uh, they clearly are not going to clean it up because they don't respect her. And so she starts to clean it up, and she calls her mother, and she says, Hey, Mom, can you tell me about your muscles? And her mom continues to blather and it runs in the background while you watch her very laboriously cleaning this entire house. And like that montage scene just like pierced me to my heart because 
I think that my own mother is very eccentric and very challenging at times. Um, but there are times when you long for the comfort of the... You long for the comfort of the insanity you know. The, yeah, the, the challenges you grew up with, like the, the familiarity of those like uh, dynamics in your own family, as opposed to the like hellscape that is your current life unfolding in front of you. Um, Thanks. So I just thought that was very... Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to more of the same with you, Chen. Uh, that was not what I meant. That was not what I meant. Good. Um, good safe. But anyway, it is that kind of stuff where I think the show is not only funny, but it's actually very heartfelt in a way that some of the other shows, a.k.a. Louie, like shows that are similar, I think don't always have that level of, for me, like insight about and, and heart. Um, of course, I'm currently very mad at Louis C.K., um, Indeed. So maybe that's part of why I'm looking less fondly on him. I know he's a producer on this show, but I hope that that doesn't change the fate of this show. Uh, so I think that's most of the stuff we're looking forward to for the next month, right? Oh, uh, well, there's just like 2005 BBC Victorian era miniseries called Bleak House that yeah. I am very much looking forward so to. So how are you watching Bleak House? Um, through a, I cannot believe I've done this. You know, you have your Netflix you have your Hulu. Maybe you have your Amazon Prime. Maybe you go in and you decide to get like FX Now separately or HBO Go. I have subscribed to this 17th tier absolute piece of shit streaming service called BritBox, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is content from the BBC. It's baking competitions and garden tours and old mysteries. But the reason is that um, my Agatha Christie that I love so much and go to sleep to every night is only available now via BritBox because they've yanked it from Netflix. How much does this cost, by the way? I, we don't how much is this get costing into, us? We don't get into numbers. I mean, like, how it's much not is beyond it, couth. How much is this costing us? Uh, it is costing me $6.99 a month. Oh, okay. That's not bad. With a free one-week trial, which has already since lapsed. So, uh, anyway... Suffice it to say that you can also watch Bleak House, at least season one. It's unclear to me if I'm going to be able to watch season two. It's a very poor selection. Also, the usability is terrible. I have a lot of feelings about BritBox. <laughs> I have a very abusive relationship. And the show is Bleak House, and it's like, a, what, a murder mystery or something? Uh, it's an adaptation of a Dickens novel. Um, stars Gillian Anderson, Anderson, Charles yeah. Dance, uh, Carrie Mulligan, um, the Incomparable Anna Maxwell Martin. It oh, is. Chris Yimon in the chat says BritBox is a channel on Amazon channels and it would be a better ex user experience there. I'm sorry. Am I paying $6.99 a month for something I didn't need to pay for at all? No, 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 no. You need to pay for it on Amazon channels, but the advantage is you get to use Amazon's the Amazon app. Instant Video app. Yeah, which is Which not, is also not great, but it's got to be better than this. I, I think it's pretty great myself, but, you know, I'm. Uh, You're biased. I'm, a, I'm biased. Yes. So, all right. Um, then you'd have your BritBox stuff, but just use Amazon's interface, Chris yes. says. So that's a good idea. Thank you, Chris. Consider that. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Uh, okay. So a few people have asked, like, uh, first of all, let me just say that the outpouring of support for David Chen taking a break uh, that I've received is incredibly heartwarming and so kind and... Uh, just makes me feel like everything's going to be okay. And so uh, to anyone who's tweeted at me or emailed and reached out and said, hey, hope you get some rest. Look forward to your return. Um, really appreciate that. Uh, it just has made a, a, a big difference. And so thank you. Um, Clearly he's resting as a result of all your exhortations. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, uh, also, you know, it's it's different to uh, just like us uh, set up the laptop and record a little bit versus like, you know, getting together with uh, coordinating schedules and getting yeah. a guest and, and seeing it within a certain time period. So this is like much less stressful uh, sure. than a regular podcast. Um, but... Uh, one thing I'll say is that uh, from a pop culture perspective, from a, from a movie watching perspective, there are some things that I've really enjoyed not having to talk about uh, from, in terms of like what movies are out in theaters and, uh, and what's you know, on television and streaming. One of those things is I am just so excited to not have to watch Justice League. Uh, it's, it's really one of the best things I have going for me right now. And I don't even think I'm joking about that, <laughs> which makes it kind of sad. Uh, but would you have watched Batman V Superman or man of steel? Yeah. Or wonder of woman of your own volition. But yes. at this point you are beaten down and not going to take it anymore. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, I, justice league is remarkable, you know, and, and again, I have not seen the film. So, uh, I like, Take this with a massive grain of rock salt, uh, but it, from everything I've heard, it's it's not good. Um, it's pretty terrible, and I think it's just it, it is an extraordinary cultural artifact. Like this whole DC set of movies that Warner Brothers is cranking out is an extraordinary cultural artifact because like hundreds of millions of dollars, like well over. Seven hundred million dollars. I'm going to say, or six, five, six hundred million dollars of money was spent on creating and marketing these movies that seem to have um, very little critical affection. Uh, and Justice League is yet another one, and it's just like it's it's remarkable how much they can keep pouring into that you know container that the bottom has already fallen out of. Um, well, the franchise is profitable, though, right? Uh, I mean, it depends on how you I don't think it. it's the runaway hit that Warner needs. Yeah. Um, it's not nearly Marvel level, but I think it is profitable, well, we'll even see. after marketing. We'll right? see how it does. I don't know about this movie. I mean, the franchise as a whole. Yeah, I mean, uh, Man of Steel didn't do that well, uh, but Batman v Superman, I think, did okay. It was very front-loaded. They made a ton of money opening weekend and then not that much uh, the other weekends. Wonder Woman did really well. Even Suicide Squad did really well. So it's like... Yeah, and Wonder Woman had a more constrained budget, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, you're right. They're not doing that horribly, but I feel like with this... I might guess, and by the time you're listening to this, I might be proven wrong, but my guess is that the lack of goodwill is going to catch up with them with Justice League and that this is not going to not going to do very well and that you know we're going to see after this some standalone films in the dc cinematic universe and like wonder woman 2 is going to do amazing and that's going to be all we're going to hear about this universe that's my guess maybe they could do something really cynical like man of steel goes to china (laughs) so and other emerging markets (laughs) uh yeah exactly Uh, i'll say i'll say another thing that i i don't miss having to talk about is uh stranger things season two yeah, Which, we have not actually cracked Stranger Things Season 2. And not out of lack of affection for Stranger Things Season 1, which we enjoyed, but we thought it was merely okay. Yeah, yeah. Season 1 was merely okay, and I, I just I just don't... 
It's, it's not nice that, it's not, not being don't... forced to binge something on that first weekend just because everybody else is talking about it right, right. at that moment. If and you're not that enthused. It's not that I don't get it. It's just that, like, I, it's not a thing. I, I think at some point we looked at each other and we're like, are we going to watch Stranger Things Season 2? And we, we said, you know, we kind of said no at the same time. We both understood that this is not... We, our enthusiasm is not high enough yeah. to justify... This. Such freedom, living it's, like a civilian. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's amazing. Um, well, uh, is there anything else you're looking forward to not watching? No, just those two things. <laughs> just those two things. All right. Well, anyway, uh, so that's, uh, that's it. That brings us to the end of the episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed this. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm you know, really grateful for Devendra and Jeff yeah, and it's, on the show. it's too bad they weren't able to do the episode No Fault of Their Own this week. Yeah, um, but uh, I, I'm so grateful for them taking over for me and, and helping handle things while I'm out. And uh, they're awesome, and I hope you're still enjoying the show without me. But just wanted to pop into your feed, say hello, give you a little update on what's up with me, and uh, hope you enjoyed hearing what we've been watching and what we're looking forward to. So, uh, again, uh, my fiance has joined me for this episode. She's at Joy of Napping on Twitter. And I'm David Chen. You and can... if we never get invited, we, the spouses, never get invited to the podcast, we might set up our own rogue podcast. I think that wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, you can find me at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen SKY on Twitter, as well as DaveChen.net. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with Devendra and Jeff's review of Justice League. Yes, it's me, Jamie Lang from Made in Chelsea, and you have stumbled across the Made in Chelsea podcast. Now, I know I'm a pretty charming guy, all right? And people come up to me and go, hey, Jamie, (laughs) how do you do it? And I tell them, be enthusiastic about meeting people. And most importantly, always be ready to smile. So make sure yours are looking the best with Sensodyne. It's designed to help care for sensitive teeth. The MIC Drop is proudly sponsored by Sensodyne, here for the hashtag sensitive moments on Made in Chelsea.